G'day, Starlo here. In this episode, I want to take a look back at the past 30 to 40 years of recreational fishing and ask what lessons they might hold for the future of our passionate pastime. The four decades from the mid-1980s until today have seen an incredible transformation in the face of recreational fishing right around the globe, nowhere more so than right here in Australia. For this retrospective, I'm choosing to look at just five specific aspects of recreational fishing in this country. They're the ones that I believe have changed most dramatically across those four decades. There have, of course, been many other areas of evolution and development, but I reckon the five major areas that I'm about to discuss represent the ones that have impacted our day-to-day fishing more than any others. I've chosen to describe them under the headings of tackle, technique, electronics, conservation and social media. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this look in the rearview mirror. It's interesting to consider the role of tackle evolution in the history of recreational fishing. Across the past four decades, innovations such as braided lines, graphite rods, sophisticated spinning reels, soft plastic lures and chemically sharpened hooks have all gone from being the specialist hard-to-find tools of a relative handful of elite leading-edge early adopters to mainstream gear for the fishing masses. Braided and fused gel-spun polyethylene line in particular has completely altered the way that most of us fish. Incredibly thin for its strength and with near zero stretch, braids dramatically increased the sheer pulling and holding power that's available to modern anglers, while also giving us much better bite-detecting capabilities, allowing us to cast further, to fish with lighter weight sinkers or lures, and to significantly increase the amount of line that we can pack onto even a relatively small reel. Older anglers, like me, frequently shake our heads in awe at what's possible with today's braid-based equipment, although I think a few of us also quietly lament the general loss of fish-fighting skills, drag-setting know-how and rod-working savvy that's tended to accompany this widespread shift to braid. It's simply a fact of life that modern fishers can get away without being quite as good at those skills as they needed to be in the past. (laughs) You can decide for yourself if that's a good thing or a bad one. Barramundi fishing provides a classic example of just how much the game has changed thanks to the uptake of braid. When I first visited the top end 40 odd years ago, the typical barra baitcaster, and let's face it, no one seriously targeted barra in those days with anything other than a baitcaster. <laughs> anyway, that typical baitcaster was spooled with stretchy 12 or 15 pound nylon monofilament. That line typically broke at or just above its rated strength, especially once you'd tied a knot or two in it. Today, an angler chasing barra is much more likely to spool up their baitcaster or modern spinning reel. Yes, you can now proudly use an egg beater to catch barra (laughs) with 20 or even 30 pound braid. This line will be noticeably thinner than the 15 pound mono of old, yet it'll likely break at something like 30 or 40 pounds, even at a knot, if that knot's well tied. So, today's barra angler effectively has twice the stopping and holding power and twice the room for error as his or her predecessor 
from the age of nylon. Of course, this has a tendency to push the pressure of heavyweight encounters onto other links in the chain, things such as leaders, hooks and rings and even rods. But overall, today's barra chaser has a far greater margin for error than he or she did in days gone by. This braided line advantage is also served to demystify and partially dethrone some species that were previously exalted as near unstoppable opponents, at least on lighter gear. Mangrove jacks and yellowtail kingfish are two prime examples. When I was a young bloke, both of these brawlers carried a legendary status for breaking lines and destroying anglers' spirits. While both are still highly regarded as exceptionally tough opponents, they've lost a great deal of that aura of near invincibility that they once held. Braid might not have tamed these wild bugs and hoodlums, but it certainly knocked a star or two off their toughness rating. There are obvious overlaps between these tackle developments and an ongoing evolution or progression in angling techniques across those four decades too. Broadly speaking, I'd argue that this change can be summed up as an incremental but steady increase in the sophistication and finesse of most cutting-edge presentations. Sure, you'll still find plenty of weekend danglers slinging sinkers the size of chicken's eggs and wielding rather agricultural rigs that are obvious hangovers from an earlier time. <laughs> a time when there were less anglers on the water and a lot more dumb fish swimming in those waters. <laughs> However, as my mate Bushy likes to say, all the dumb fish got caught 20 or 30 years ago. Using that sort of gear today is a recipe for failure in most situations. The fact is, with growing pressure on our waterways, reduced fish stocks in some of them, and a clear increase in the learnt hook avoidance behaviour of many remaining fish populations, anglers have needed to constantly wise up and sharpen their tactics to stay ahead of the game, or even simply to keep up with it. As a result, new approaches are constantly being refined and old, long-forgotten ones rediscovered, usually with a modern twist or two. Most new breakthroughs enjoy a relatively brief burst of time in the sun as the latest deadly go-to technique, before gradually sliding down the effectiveness scale to join the rank-and-file lineup of time-proven strategies. Some even continue that slide into virtual obscurity, perhaps to be rediscovered, reinvented and retweaked by a future generation of anglers searching for that elusive edge. Nowhere is this fast-churning evolutionary process more clearly demonstrated than in the world of lure fishing. A lot of the hothouse development of lures and the techniques for presenting them are driven by tournament fishers, both here and overseas, and a disproportionate amount of the cutting-edge new stuff comes out of the United States and Japan, although our local lure makers are certainly no slouches in the field of innovation, especially as it relates to uniquely Aussie target species like the mighty Murray Cod. A perfect demonstration of this ceaseless churn and burn phenomenon at work is provided by a brief look at the local history of lipless crankbaits or vibes across the decades. 
Before Big Bill Briscoe won a Barra classic in the mid-1980s using cotton cordell rattlin spots, this genre of hard bodies had largely flown under the radar of most Aussie anglers, despite the fact that early examples like the Head and Sonic had been around for yonks, and they were used to great effect by a handful of more switched-on fishos. Briscoe's tournament win opened the eyes of many to the potential of these lures, and they went from zero to hero in record time, quickly selling out in many shops. Lots of fish were caught on them before the edge started to come off the rattling spot phenomenon, but eventually that did happen, and their effectiveness began to decline in anything other than remote, lightly fished waters. Make no mistake, the older style of noisy, hard rattling vibes, epitomised by the spots and their clones, still catch plenty of fish, but they don't often produce the near-magical results that they did in their heyday through the late 80s and early 90s. However, the evolution of this genre of lures certainly didn't stop there. It never does. Fast forward a few years and gun tournament angler Harry Watson helped introduce a whole new generation of Aussie anglers to the next iteration of Hard Vibes. A wave of anglers, by the way, that included our very own Wallabeast, Carl Jockamson, who's now doing us proud on the US pro bass circuit. Driven by the massive growth of interest in catching impoundment bass and golden perch, the jackal boom that Harry lit the fuse on was even bigger than the spot boom of an earlier decade, and it's lasted much longer too. One reason for this is the increased sophistication of the jackals and their better imitations over those earlier vibes. A more subtle range of sonic signatures, a propensity for standing on their weighted chins during a pause, and an action that kicks in with the slightest lift or pull rather than a harder rip makes comparing an original rattling spot to a TN Jackal a bit like, I don't know, comparing a crop duster to a jet fighter. They both do their jobs really well, just differently. This same refinement and growth of sophistication can be seen in every other style of lure, from spinner baits to floating diving minnows or swim baits, and it shows no sign of slowing down. If there's one area of development in equipment and accessories for recreational fishing that makes my head spin more than any of the others, it's definitely the field of marine electronics, specifically depth sounders and GPS plotters. It's pretty easy to forget that very few trailer boats in this country even had a depth sounder or a fish finder before the mid-1980s, and that as late as the 90s, lots of the better units then in use still featured a belt-driven stylus busily scratching away to sketch a carbon graph of the seabed onto a slowly unrolling sheet of sensitised paper. I can still smell that distinctive burnt carbon odour when you open the front door of these units to replace the paper roll. As for navigation and finding fishing spots, most of us from the pre-satellite era grew up on compass bearings, dead reckoning and the triangulation of landmarks. Put that distinct notch in the second ridge line over the A-frame house to the north and the radio tower over the surf club to the south. <laughs> if someone cut down one of your favourite triangulation trees or built a new house in front of an old landmark, you were basically stuffed. <laughs> Likewise in the dark, on foggy or smoky days and when you were too far offshore to see the marks. 
That all began to change in the 1980s with the introduction of the Loran C ground-based navigation system. This was quite widely used in the commercial sector but never really became popular or widespread among recreational boaters, at least not in Australia. All that would change, of course, with the advent of a satellite-based global positioning system, or GPS. The full constellation of 24 active satellites that's necessary for modern, accurate GPS position plotting and navigation didn't come online until the early 90s, and it would be several more years until affordable consumer units began to make their appearance on the boat consoles of switched-on Aussie fishos. In 1995, US company Lowrance introduced Global Map 2000, the world's first LCD screen platform offering integrated GPS, mapping and sonar capabilities in a single head unit. It was an absolute game changer. Along with GPS, sounder or sonar technology was also on the march through the 90s. And while there seemed to be a brief lag in resolution and overall performance after the phasing out of those paper sounders, that gap soon closed. By the new millennium, superb digital sounders were available at more and more affordable prices. And the amount of fish finding bang for your buck still seems to increase every year. Lowrance, widely acknowledged as the world's market leader in the field of recreational marine electronics, introduced their HDS, or High Definition System, in 2008, and their game-changing down-scan imaging the following year. Structure Scan, which added the revolutionary side-scan functions to down-scan, came at the end of 2015. Since that point, things have gone into overdrive, with one company after another unveiling increasingly remarkable live imaging, active targeting or forward-facing sonar systems that offer look-ahead and 360-degree viewing in real time, with imagery of the sort that had once only been available to high-end commercial and military users. It's hard to nominate an endpoint to this current surge of innovation in sounder and transducer development. Already under ideal shallow water conditions and in the hands of a skilled operator, it's possible to separate and identify individual fish even in heavy cover, to see your lure and to watch in real time as these targets interact with your presentations. It's frankly nothing short of mind-blowing and there's no reason to think that developments in this arena will slow down anytime soon. Not surprisingly, some folks, mostly those who don't own or have never used such equipment, are already throwing their hands in the air, gnashing their teeth, smacking their foreheads, and foretelling the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> According to these pundits, the latest generation of fish-finding electronics are unsporting, unfair, and will result in the complete decimation of fish stocks everywhere. Funnily enough, I'm pretty sure similar prophecies of doom and gloom were bandied around when Carl Lawrence launched his little green box fish locator flasher way back in 1959. <laughs> so far, those predictions of ruin haven't come to pass. As I like to say about any of these technologies, there's a world of difference between seeing fish and catching them. One of the bitter truths that this latest generation of electronics is repeatedly hammering home to most of us is the fact that many, many fish 
simply refuse our best offerings a lot of the time. They'll either ignore our baits, lures or flies, or even actively spook away from them. That's just a fact of life, although it can be disheartening to see it confirmed again and again on a screen. I suspect we may even see a certain level of pullback from these technologies as anglers in specific scenarios come to the realisation that they may actually be wasting a lot of time trying to catch inactive fish that they can see rather than hunting for more active targets that they haven't yet identified. That said, I can also envisage a range of scenarios in which anglers and especially tournament competitors will find themselves at a distinct disadvantage if they don't own this sort of gear and know how to use it. All in all, we're in for a couple of very interesting years on the electronics front. I'm really looking forward to watching it all unfold, and I strongly doubt that the sky will fall or that fishing as we know it, with all its delicious uncertainties, will come to an end anytime soon. (laughs) Stay tuned on that one. In the early 1990s, very few Aussie anglers actively thought of themselves as conservationists, even though many were already exactly that, at least in the truest sense of the term. In those days, the labels of conservationist or environmentalist were most often applied to activists, such as those who fought to prevent the damming of Tasmania's Franklin River in the early 1980s, or to the often radical protesters involved in Sydney's union-led green bands a decade earlier. It's interesting to note that the derogatory term greenie actually evolved right here in Australia during this era, and it's gone on to be used more widely around the developed world. It'd be fair to say that most keen fishers of the early 90s saw greenies as the enemies of their sport. Slowly, ever so slowly, that attitude's changing. Some of this change is reflected in an increasing acceptance of catch-and-release fishing, which received a massive boost through the 1990s thanks to Rex Hunt kissing them and letting them go on TV. 30 or 40 years ago, very few Aussie anglers regularly chose to release desirable, edible fish that they were legally allowed to keep. It's also worth remembering that the laws concerning size and bag limits were generally much less stringent at that time. As a result of these prevailing attitudes and the generous regulations of the era, far fewer fish were deliberately let go in those days. There were exceptions, of course. Keener barra anglers up north, along with specialists chasing Australian bass, Murray cod and even trout down south, often voluntarily chose catch and release over kill and grill, while many offshore game and sport fishers had willingly embraced the already long-established tagging program. It's worth remembering that the New South Wales Game Fish Tagging Program began way back in 1973, making it the world's longest-running and most successful citizen science project of its kind. Two very different species that embody a paradigm shift in angler attitudes across the past 30 to 40 years are the dusky flathead and the Murray cod. As late as the early 90s, some fishers were still showing off their angling prowess by nailing oversized flatty heads to trees in the local caravan park (laughs) or hanging Murray cod frames from the welcome signs to outback towns. (laughs) Today, such behaviour would be viewed as antisocial and reprehensible, and rightly so. 
It might even be argued that the pendulum has swung too far in favour of catch and release, and that it's time to once again celebrate the merits of sustainably harvesting a feed for the family. But something that definitely can't be denied is the fact that today's generation of sport fishers are much more switched on in terms of environmental awareness and the importance of protecting our fish stocks and the habitats that sustain them. And that's a very good thing. When historians look back on our current era of digital disruption from the distance of a generation or two, I suspect that its defining characteristics may be our incredible dependence on mobile devices and the closely associated influence of social media in our daily lives. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter. (laughs) Look around on a bus, a train or in a restaurant and you'll typically see at least half of your fellow travellers or patrons hunched over their mobile devices at any given moment. This proportion increases in younger groups. Some will be texting, checking their emails, selecting music tracks or reading the latest news, but most will be actively engaged with social media platforms of one type or another. Younger listeners and viewers in particular might be rather surprised to learn that this whole internet thing is a relatively recent phenomenon. So-called smartphones didn't appear until the mid-1990s, and there was no such thing as Google until 1998. It's sobering to remember that Facebook and Twitter didn't launch globally until 2006, while YouTube is just one year older. Instagram arrived on the scene in 2010 and Snapchat was launched one year later in 2011. So they're all fairly new. While social media has been one of the most transformative and influential developments of the 21st century, and it's literally helped to shape our world, it hasn't come without its share of unforeseen consequences for both individuals and society at large. These consequences have impacted every aspect of modern life, including recreational fishing. I don't believe that any of us, even the few who've remained staunchly disconnected from it all, can honestly claim that social media hasn't dramatically altered recreational fishing. Some of these changes have been positive, others less so. For one thing, social media has far too often become a competitive arena intended primarily to promote a culture of envy and jealousy in others, often with damaging impacts on their mental well-being. In the words of American author and journalist Alexandra Samuel, quote, Envy is so profoundly woven into the experience of using modern social media that it's brought the term FOMO into common currency. Fear of missing out, FOMO, is an almost inevitable byproduct of witnessing other people's vacations, parties and purchases through social media, end of quote. (laughs) She could well have added prize catches or spectacular fishing experiences to that list of envy-inducing displays. Almost all of us who use social media are guilty of indulging in this look-at-me culture from time to time. However, social media's negative aspects aren't confined simply to the generation of jealousy as some sort of perverse modern sport. (laughs) The often angry, hostile maelstrom of socials has also devalued our learning experiences, cheapened the acquisition of genuine wisdom, fostered dangerous conspiracy theories, and allowed those with an axe to grind to throw digital rocks with virtual immunity. 
Furthermore, and perhaps most critically of all, social media has served to dramatically increase pressure on fragile resources and sensitive places. This last impact, increased pressure on fish and locations, is one that we all need to very carefully consider. Back when most of us got our angling intel from magazines, there was a lag between the generation of news and its wider dissemination. That lag or lead time ranged from weeks to months, depending on the publication. Today, thanks to social media, this critical news lag has been reduced to minutes or even seconds. It's possible for others to see, almost in real time, what's being caught, how it's being caught, and even exactly where it's being caught. While most of us have benefited on many occasions from this extraordinary level of connectivity and sharing of intel, we also need to be aware of some of its potentially darker consequences. Remember that not everyone watching and learning has your noble intentions. The next commercial netter, poacher, over-harvester or blatant rule-breaker to use a social media post as a tool to pinpoint and target a vulnerable concentration of fish certainly won't be the first or the last. The message is simple enough. Think before you post. There's a good reason that some of today's more savvy social media fishing influencers delay or stagger their posts, frame photos carefully, and even digitally disguise backgrounds in images to obscure identifiable locations. They're protecting their own intellectual property for sure, but they're also guarding fish and fishing spots. Unfortunately, I believe that these negative aspects inherent in modern social media will only tend to grow across the next few years, further diminishing the true value of these platforms and driving increasing numbers of people to either drop out of the digital world altogether or to seek more mature, inclusive and welcoming arenas for engaging with like-minded folk. But there's really no point bemoaning the ills and pitfalls of social media, nor falsely eulogising the good old days back before it became so all-pervasive in our lives. It is what it is, and there's little to be gained in lamenting an existing reality, like complaining about the weather. But at least we can all be more aware of the potential pitfalls of these platforms, and perhaps think twice, or even three times, before hitting that post tab. To sum up, the past 30 to 40 years have been quite a ride in the recreational fishing world, and I'm sure the next 30 to 40 will be as well. Who knows what changes lie in store for all of us. Suffice to say, there'll be many, and at least some of them will be completely unexpected. But as dramatic and surprising as these changes might prove to be, most will remain relatively superficial and even unimportant when they're measured against the core values of our sport, and the things that really motivate us to pursue it. Through all this ceaseless churn and burn of change, it's well worth remembering those timeless, underlying reasons that drive us to wet a line in the first place. Especially the intimate connections our sport creates with nature, with the fish we pursue, and with our fellow fishers. Those things never really change, or at least they shouldn't. They're as old as our passionate pastime itself. Until next time, this is Starlo wishing you tight lines. Mm-hmm.